welcome to another episode of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of Takar and Gracefield Developments Limited, and the citation for this case is 2019 UKSC 30. And this case has quite a few twists and turns along the way, so hopefully you will all find it rather interesting. The appellant in this case is Mrs. Takar, and around 2004 she was suffering from some financial problems. On the one hand, she did own a number of properties, but unfortunately these were in very poor condition, and so she was left in a bit of a bind. The good news was that her cousin, Mrs. Krishan, was happy to help her out, and so in late 2005, the properties were transferred to Gracefield Developments Limited, which was a new company created to deal with the properties. Mrs. Dekar was a shareholder and director, alongside Mrs. Krishan and her husband. Now the keen-eared amongst you may have noticed that Gracefield Developments is also the name of the respondent in this case, so you will not be surprised to hear that things did not exactly go according to plan. In fact, there was a dispute about the precise nature of the agreement between the parties. On the one hand, Mrs. Takar says that in the first instance, the dilapidated properties would be renovated at the expense of the Krishans and then rented out. The rent would be used to then pay back the money spent by the Krishans, but Mrs. Takar would remain the beneficial owner of the properties throughout. On the other hand, the Krishans stated that while it was true the properties were due to be renovated, once this had been completed, they would be sold instead of rented out. The proceeds of the sale were then to be divided as follows. Mrs. Takar would get a set amount and then any further profits would be split 50-50 between the Krishans and Mrs. Takar. So who was right? Well, in order to find out, Mrs. Takar brought proceedings that claimed the properties had been transferred to Gracefield as a result of undue influence or some other form of unconscionable conduct by the Krishans. As part of the Krishan's defence, there was a key piece of evidence, a copy of a profit-sharing agreement that not only aligns with the narrative presented by the Krishans, but was also signed by Mrs. Takar. The dramatic turn happened ahead of the trial when Mrs. Takar requested leave to obtain evidence from a handwriting expert, as she was not sure how her signature had come to appear on this document. That request was refused, however, and so the Krishans were successful in proving their case. However, after the case was over and done with, Mrs. Takar still went to the handwriting expert, who was now able to confirm her suspicions. The signature had been copied from an earlier document, and so the profit-sharing agreement was not actually signed by Mrs. Takar. What could she do in this situation? After all, the case was finished by this point. Well, Mrs. Takar applied to have the original order set aside on the basis that it had been obtained by fraud. In theory, that should have been very straightforward, given the expert evidence that had now at last been obtained. However, in yet another dramatic turn, this was opposed by the Krishans as they argued that such an application was an abusive process because the document in question had been available ahead of the original trial. The Court of Appeal agreed with this line of reasoning because if there was a question of fraud then that should indeed have been brought up at the original proceedings. The only time that an application to set aside the decision ought to be allowed is when the fraud could not have been uncovered by reasonable due diligence at the time. As Mrs. Takar had suspicions about the document from the start, 
and could have engaged a handwriting expert at an earlier point in the trial process, her application was an abusive process and the original judgment would stand. That was then appealed to the Supreme Court, where seven justices sat to hand down judgment. The expanded court is reflective of a core principle that lies at the heart of this case. Fraud is its own unique area that requires special consideration. That might seem like an obvious point, and it has certainly received formal recognition in other Commonwealth countries such as Canada and Australia, but this is the closest that the UK's highest court has come to making the same declaration. In fact, with Lord Kerr's judgement on this point receiving the explicit backing of a majority and the seeming implicit backing of the other justices, it is pretty safe to say that this is a ratio of this case. However, the concept that fraud is special or unique cannot stand on its own, and so Lord Kerr expands on the point by noting that it clearly flies in the face of justice that a fraudulent individual should be allowed to benefit from their fraudulent actions. Even in instances where another party has perhaps not acted with the due diligence that might be expected by someone in that position, it is still problematic that it is the fraud that wins out in these circumstances. As was noted, the deception that has been perpetrated is not only against the other party at this point, but also against the courts, and furthermore, the rule of law itself. It could also lead to the contradictory scenario where a person is imprisoned because of the fraud, and yet remains able to enforce the judgement that they have, even though it was obtained by that self-same fraud. That judgement was probably the most powerful, but it was by no means the only one that favoured Mrs Takar, whose appeal was eventually allowed by all seven justices in a unanimous decision. Lord Sumption, for example, got into the nitty-gritty of the application itself, and is therefore also worth exploring. The idea here is that whereas the Court of Appeal regarded this case as a procedural application, it actually exists as its own course of action. This is important because it means that it is not as strictly tied to the original trial, and indeed the basis of the current case is that the original decision is infected by fraud, and therefore cannot bind the parties. Nevertheless, that important point does have to be balanced against another aspect of public policy that litigation cannot simply go on forever, and there does have to be a point at which proceedings are truly over, so that the courts can effectively manage their caseloads. In a separate judgement, Lord Briggs noted that this requires the courts to closely examine the facts of each case and carefully consider whether there has been a lack of diligence by the applicant in the original trial. Of course, the starting point is that such a right to have the judgement set aside does exist, and is not even necessarily dependent on the earlier due diligence. That approach is perhaps a little confused though, and the majority seem to instead favour the clearer line of reasoning put forward by Lord Sumption. He begins with the principle that we are entitled to assume that other people will be honest. If we then take that alongside the point about constant relitigation, then the logical conclusion is that an action will only be denied when a claimant deliberately decides not to investigate the suspected fraud at the first trial. As we move on to our own analysis of this case, I think we can start with this point. The formulation by Lord Sumption is perhaps more extreme in terms of the conclusion that it reaches, but provides much more certainty than Lord Briggs, who instead makes more of an effort to cling on to the old ideas of reasonable diligence. The problem with doing this was most keenly noted by Lady Arden, who notes that the concept is illogical. 
What she means by this is that the punishment of not being able to undo the fraud is totally disproportionate to a simple failure to demonstrate reasonable diligence. In the legal media, this case has been presented as one of fraud versus finality, with a lot of focus on the notion that fraud unravels all. That phrasing is slightly problematic, as while it does emphasise the unique nature of fraud, it also hints at a vulnerability in the legal system, as if it might just all blow up like the Death Star if it is struck in the wrong spot. The facts of this case show that this is the wrong interpretation. Mrs Takar was clearly the victim of a deliberate attempt to defraud her at a time when she was already in a vulnerable position. Punishing her because of an administrative error on her part is overkill and stands in the way of a just outcome. Some will continue to argue that this case undermines the certitude of proceedings in the courts, and that is true, but fraud undermines the legal system as a whole, and it is this that has to be taken most seriously of all. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode of the UK Law Weekly podcast, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. If you are a law student and you've got exams coming up, then remember to visit my website at uklawweekly.com where you can subscribe to the email newsletter and at the same time you get a free ebook on how to answer problem questions. I'll be back with another case next week, but for now, bye!